that we would, as we listen tonight, we would listen with ears that hear, and we would leave with, with feet that are quick to apply what we've learned tonight. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles now, please, to First Timothy, the first epistle to Timothy. And tonight we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 3. Your Bibles probably don't fall open there yet, but give it a few weeks, and they will. 1 Timothy chapter th- uh, 1, verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Would you read along with me in the text? Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Systematic theology, the greatest of the sciences, has fallen upon evil days. Between the rejection and ridicule of it by the so-called progressives, and the neglect and abridgment of it by the orthodox, as a potent influence, it is approaching the point of extinction. You recognize this? Okay. It is a significant fact that of the upwards of two score accredited notable works on systematic theology which have been produced in this and other countries, an exceedingly small portion is now in print, and the demand for these works is negligible. The unchanging emphasis in scriptures upon doctrine, which subject is referred to in the New Testament more than 40 times, and is that to which a Christian is to give heed our passage tonight, stands as a silent rebuke, whether heeded or not, to all modern notions which belittle the importance of dogmatic theology, and stand as a corrective to those who neglect any portion of it. It is no secret that the average minister is now not reading systematic theology, nor will such writings occupy a prominent place in his library. Shocking indeed, this condition would have been to ministers of two generations ago, men whose position was respected in their day because of their deep knowledge of the doctrinal portions of the Bible and whose spoken ministries and writings have gone far toward the upbuilding of the body of Christ. The present situation is not one of passing moment. As well might a medical doctor discard his books on anatomy and therapeutics as for the preacher to discard his books on systematic theology. And since doctrine is the bone structure of the body of revealed truth, neglect of it must result in a message characterized by uncertainties, inaccuracies, and immaturity. What is the specific field of learning that distinguishes the ministerial profession if it is not the knowledge of the Bible and its doctrines? To the preacher is committed a responsibility of surpassing import. Men of other professions, 
are tireless in their attempts to discover the truths and to perfect themselves in the use of the forces belonging to their various callings, though these be in the restricted field of material things. The preacher is called upon to deal with the things of God, the supernatural and the eternal. His service is different from all others as to aims, different as to available forces, and of necessity, different as to adequate preparation. No substitute will ever be found for the knowledge of the Word of God. That Word alone deals with things eternal and infinite, and it alone has the power to convert the soul and to develop a God-honoring spiritual life. Words spoken in April of 1934 by Lewis Perry Chafer, which first appeared in a Bibsack article of that year, and then later were reprinted in 1948 as part of the preface to his seven-volume Systematic Theology. The importance of the Word of God and the biblical doctrines that are found in the Word of God. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3 again, speaking to Timothy, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may teach or instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Paul penned these opening words to remind Timothy to correct teachers in the Ephesian church, or churches, who were majoring on minor matters in their biblical teaching. In doing so, he reminded Timothy of his own responsibility as a communicator of God's truth. Paul tells Timothy to remain on in Ephesus. Paul's geographical movements that are recounted here in 1 Timothy probably took place between his first Roman imprisonment and the writing of this epistle. He was, as far as we know, he was in Rome in prison from 60 to 62. That's where he wrote the prison epistles, the prison epistles being Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians as well as Philemon. Then he is... Uh, released from prison. We don't know the details because the book of Acts stops with his first imprisonment, but we know that he was released, and then apparently he was in Ephesus, and he tell, he's going to leave, but he tells Timothy to stay on in Ephesus. Now, it should be noticed, noticed, noted that Timothy was not just a pastor at Ephesus. Timothy was, was Paul's representative in Ephesus. And his function was pastoral, but it was a bit different from the pastoral function that we have in our churches today in this way. Paul was an apostle who had authority over all the Gentile churches, perhaps even some of the Jewish churches, but at least I think we can safely say over the Gentile churches. He leaves Timothy behind at Ephesus as his representative, and Timothy, by, by means of being Paul's representative, is an apostle as well in the sense of his function at that time, and he also he represents Paul to all the churches as well. So, uh, a city like Ephesus may have had several house churches. We just finished our study of Rome, and in the city of Rome, we know that there were at least, or we believe that there were at least five house churches in Rome. So, when we talk, talk about the church at Ephesus, we should understand that the church at Ephesus was probably, most likely, a series of house churches that were there, and Timothy was was put in charge as a representative of the Apostle Paul over all of those house churches. This is the best understanding, this is the best recreation that we can, uh, we can have of this, 
situation. And in those particular house churches, each one would have had past, a pastor or pastors. It's, it's, it's relatively silly to debate that with a dogmatic tongue because the scripture is not as clear as, as some people would like to think on that particular issue. But every, every one of those house churches likely had at least one elder in that church who was teaching the word. And what we find, as Paul has left and Timothy has stayed, is that there were apparently some of those men who were teaching that were not teaching as they should. At least some were not teaching as they should. In fact, Paul calls it strange or... Uh, well, strange doctrine is, a, is, a, is an appropriate word. The, the term that he uses, uh, parangelo, for the word instruct, in, in order that you may instruct them not to teach certain doctrines, this is more than just giving them a class on it. It's more than just sitting them down and giving them academic instruction. Actually, this, this term means to announce what must be done. It's, it's to order somebody to do something, to command them to do something. So Paul has heard about the situation that's going on in Ephesus. He's commanding Timothy to command them not to teach strange doctrines. This was an issue all the way back in the early church in as good of a city as Ephesus was for Christianity in the ancient world. I mean, you had Antioch, which was a very strong center of Christianity, and it looks very much like you have Ephesus that was a very strong center of Christianity, too. Certainly Philippi, Thessalonica, but it, but it, looks, it looks a lot like the two strongest centers of Christianity were Syria and Antioch than the city of Ephesus. But even in the city of Ephesus, there were problems with their theology. These false teachers and their heresy were a present and dangerous reality in the Ephesian church. I want to stop here and talk about the H word for just a moment. Because as I try to keep my, my uh, eyes open to the Christian community and get on different forums, I never participate in the forum, but I read what's being said in different places, the H word is passed around, in my view, way too much. The H word being the heresy word in Christianity. I saw the heresy word passed around in a forum this week when, when someone, when they, a pastor had taught that, um, that there was no direct link scripturally between confession of sin and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is a very true statement. And, and there were several people on this message board that were saying, this is very borderline, this is real close to heresy. Well, no. As soon as you call something like that heresy, which I happen to believe, too. I mean, if you, if you can find a direct link, I'd like for you to come up and show it to me. Um, there, there's, there are theological links, but there's no direct scriptural link that says once one confesses their sins, they're then filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but that being said, when we, when we use the heresy word over issues like that, what, are we gonna, what word are we going to use when people deny the deity of Christ? What word are we going to use when people deny the virgin birth or the second coming of Christ or the reality of heaven and hell? What word are we going to use for that if we, if we throw around the heresy word just like it was popcorn? When you do that, we only make ourselves look theologically very unsophisticated, almost theologically ignorant when we do that. I would hope that nobody from our church would throw the heresy word around unless it truly is heresy. If someone's denying the deity of Christ, that's heresy. 
If someone is, is saying that there is no direct link scripturally, there's no scriptural passage that says when one confesses their sins, they're then automatically filled with the Holy Spirit, don't call that heresy. That, that would make us look bad. That would make you look bad as the one who would do that. But what was going on in Ephesus? These are very strong issues. Timothy was commanded to stop these men from teaching these strange doctrines. Paul said, sound words and doctrines conforming to godliness were a litmus test to determine the authenticity and veracity of the teachers. He says this, he will say it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Some of these false teachers were, in my understanding, leaders at the church. Now, this, it wasn't always this way. When Paul writes to the Galatians years before this, he writes of those who are teaching a false gospel. And we don't understand those men to have been coming up from within the church. We, we understand those to be Judaizers that came in from outside. But it looks much more in the situation in Ephesus that Paul is speaking to in First Timothy that these were men that were actually occupying pulpits in Ephesus. And so they are instructed not to, to do this. Paul anticipated several years before the writing of 1 Timothy that some elders in Ephesus would draw the disciples away by speaking perverse things. He does this in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. He warned them about it all the way before his first Roman imprisonment. Furthermore, the prophecy of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, about those who would fall away from the faith, along with those who had already fallen, suggest that the false teachers had once, at least at one time, been identified with the faith. So the community of believers were being led astray by the very men who had been commissioned to help ground them in sound doctrine. And that's a shame. It is a crying shame. When men are commissioned to stand in a pulpit and given the freedom that we have in our nation to proclaim the word of God, given the opportunity that, that exists in our nation to educate oneself, and then they stand in the pulpit and teach strange doctrines, if they teach doctrines at all. That is a crying shame. Now, the exact nature of what they were teaching, the exact nature of what Paul calls strange doctrines, is somewhat explained in the next verse when he says, Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than fully fulfilling or furthering the administration of God which is by faith. So we have a bit of information about what the strange doctrines were there, but the, the specifics of the heresy is a bit difficult to determine. But Paul does mention three false teachings in this epistle specifically. There were some in Ephesus who were teaching a prohibition of marriage. There were others who were teaching abstinence from certain foods. Now, this is not for health reasons. For health reasons, it might be wise to avoid certain food. But we're talking about for spiritual reasons. There were some that were teaching in Ephesus that you should avoid certain foods for spiritual reasons. Don't eat meat, and you'll be more spiritual. I would prefer to say, don't eat vegetables, and you'll be more spiritual. I'm going to find that somewhere in here at some point. But that's not what they were saying. There was also some that were claiming that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, not that there would be no resurrection. That's not what they were claiming, apparently. But they were claiming that it already had taken place. 
Now, if I was to stand before you today and say, hey, listen, the resurrection of the church has already happened. Whoa, <laughs> that, that would kind of be big news, wouldn't it? And, and it might just cause us to shudder just a bit because if we understand our eschatology properly and the resurrection already happened, then some pretty bad judgments are on our ways. You know, sealed judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments that keep getting worse and worse and worse. And, and one of the wonderful things about our understanding of what the Word of God reveals about eschatology is that we don't have to go through that. We're going, to be in, we're going to be in heaven. Now, we'll be going through an evaluation at that time, but, but we won't be going through the devastation that will occur during the great tribulation here on earth. But that being said, it, it appears as though the error of the objects of Paul's criticism seems to really have been even more than the doctrine itself, the emphasis was with which they taught certain doctrines. Strange doctrines is a general term that contrasts some sort of novel teaching to that which is edifying. In particular, these teachers seem to have been emphasizing extra-biblical stories that had become part of their traditions, the traditions of Judaism, that grew out of genealogies in the Old Testament. That's what Paul says, that they should not pay attention to myths or endless genealogies. They evidently describe two aspects of one aberration rather than two separate problems. So there were myths that, were, that, were, that came forth from these endless genealogies. This kind of emphasis... Paul warns, simply generated questions for which there are no real answers, rather than contributing to the spiritual maturation of believers. John Bunyan once reportedly said, Some love meat, some love to pick at the bones. If we're to properly feed the flock, I can't throw you a bone that has been picked dry. You're not going to grow from that. The body of Christ needs the meat of the word. And as long as we're talking about meat, let me say this. There are no such things as meat doctrines and milk doctrines. I want to make that clear to you. All doctrine has meaty aspects and milk aspects of it. For example, the doctrine of salvation. There are milk aspects to the doctrine of salvation. How much does one have to really understand before they can be saved? Do they have to understand the, the eternal nature of the divine decrees, the, the issues between Calvinism and Arminianism? Do they, do they, have, to, do they have to understand uh, Lapsarianism before they can be saved? Of course not. Those are the meatier parts of the doctrine of soteriology. They need to understand that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, period. You're a sinner, you need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the only way out. And now you, you need to believe in Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that died and that, was, that rose again on the third day, that was resurrected, that, that lives. Of, of course, we can't, we can't place our faith in someone who's other than the Jesus of the Bible. But there are milk doctrines and there are meat doctrines, no matter what the category. So don't, sometimes people say, well, well, ecclesiology is a real milk doctrine, but soteriology is a real meat doctrine. Well, don't be so silly. That's, that's not the case. Examples of some similar errors in teaching today might be some of these. Preoccupation with typology. And if I step on your toes, forgive me, 
Take it as coming from Paul, if you can. The Apostle Paul. Or you can take it as coming from Pastor Paul, too. Actually, he wrote this paragraph for me. No, I did. I take, I take credit or blame. Uh, examples of these similar errors, errors would be preoccupation with typology. Some people get so wrapped up in types. They see types in everything where there are no types. Uh, Samson has been called a type of Christ. That's a stretch. Uh, that's, that's a pretty serious stretch. Numerology. Um, an, an abnormal fascination with numbers in the Bible. You know, the number three, uh, the number seven, uh, the number 40. Y- yes, you, you, can, you can make some observations. The number 40 does seem to be a number of testing. The number three does seem to be a number of perfection. Uh, I, I can read that too. But when we get too wrapped up, in numerology, we can find ourselves becoming weak or anemic spiritually. A few months ago, we had as as our speaker, actually it might have been a year ago now, we had as our speaker at the Dallas Seminary Alumni Luncheon, a professor at Dallas Seminary by the name of Dan Wallace. Actually, that was Will Johnson's mentor, if, if I understand it correctly, at Dallas. Uh, Dr. Uh, Wallace had... It discovered some new manuscripts in the, was it in uh, Sinai? In Turkey. And, and he had an incredible opportunity to go in and photograph these manuscripts, and, and it was a, a great discovery. And he was telling us about it, and one of the things he told us about was the fact that, that there were no real serious doctrines that were changed in, in any way by these new uh, discoveries. But there was one number that was changed. And he said the number of the beast, which reads 666 in, in many manuscripts, in these manuscripts that he discovered, at least that's what he told us, read 661, which is interesting. And we kind of chuckled about it. And he said the only, the only significance of this might be that a whole generation of books on eschatology might have to be rewritten because too much had been made of that particular number. Sometimes we can major in minors, and we get ourselves so far off the track we, we have folks that are majoring in minors that don't know the majors yet. That, that don't know sound doctrine, but yet we're going to get off into numerology or, or way, way out of line with typology. And this, this, must, uh, this must grieve the Spirit of God. There's also a majoring in minors that, that is done in a, on a more subtle level. And all pastors are, I think susceptible to this and I told you when we started the study of First Timothy while it's they're called the pastoral epistles that is information about the whole church but but there there is information for pastors here as well and there's a lesson for pastors in this so I will I will say it to myself and to the other pastors in the room but but we can create an error by in our exposition concentrating on the details of exegesis while at the same time failing to emphasize the point of the passage that is being expounded upon. Sometimes we can get really wrapped up because we're excited about it. We can get really wrapped up in, in a particular uh, aspect of a Greek verb, and three-quarters of the, converse, uh, the congregation is going to sleep. Now, there's nothing wrong. I've, I've already told you what one Greek verb meant tonight, but I had a reason for doing it. The reason for doing it, I, I wanted you to see that Paul was commanding Timothy to command these men to do that. It wasn't just a suggestion. 
This is not an academic exercise. It's from the authority of one apostle to another who is functioning as apostle to those who are elders who had authority as well. So we need to be careful with that, too, because there, it, when we fail to emphasize what the author's intended meaning is in a text and emphasize something else, then we have created a problem. There is, there is a problem sometimes, pastorally, with overemphasizing certain details to the exclusion of the big picture. Let's suppose you, you came home tonight, and there was a monkey sitting on your couch. And when you left, you didn't have a monkey in the house. Now, there, now I'm not talking about your son who just uh, didn't bathe. I'm talking about a real live monkey sitting on the couch. Now, are you, uh, how wise is it to come in and take a look at that monkey and, and say, my, my goodness, that monkey's got brown hair. Looks, looks a bit like my cousin, actually. And, you know, he's got hair all over his face. It's a, it's a male monkey. He's got two hands, got ten fingers, ten toes. Uh, it smells kind of bad. And, you know, and, and it's got hair that's probably about an inch long. It looks like it's about three feet tall. And we, we can know all these details about a monkey. But there's one big question that's not being answered. Or even asked. What's the monkey doing on the couch? You, you see the point? Sometimes we can overanalyze and get so wrapped up in details that we forget, hey, listen, there's a message to this passage. And that message, what is God saying to his people through his messenger here in this passage? So those of us who are uh, in that profession, we need to be careful with that, do we not? We've got to be careful. Now, exegesis technically, exegesis takes place in your office. Exposition takes place in the pulpit. We have to go through all that in order to be able to feed you. But when I go to a nice restaurant, I don't expect them to come out and tell me all the ingredients that went into a particular dish. I want them to serve me the dish. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to be nourished from it. Now, if, if, if there's an ingredient that, happen, that maybe some people are allergic to, they may say, hey, listen, we prepare this with that. Is that a problem for you? Or th there's a reason for telling you the particular detail. Otherwise, we can lose the beauty of it. How, how wise would it also be to, to be in Colorado and to smell that, that air from all those evergreens, to be at a place like, like West Cliff, and to, like we were at the camp last year, and to look out over that sky, and then to just, but just to focus on one pine cone. And not even on one pine cone, but one little part of that pine cone. And then not to just do that, but to take that pine cone out and, and be oblivious to all the beauty around you. And to put that pine cone under the microscope. Now the fact of the matter is that somebody needs to do that. I'm, I'm glad that we do know the molecular structure of a pine cone. But if we get so wrapped up in that, and we miss the big picture. Have we really communicated that which we're supposed to communicate? I've been accused. I'm just going to I'll be up front with you. This is Wednesday night. I think we can do this. I've been accused sometimes of, of being a lightweight preacher. And you know why? Because I don't tell you every Greek word that's in the text. I know the Greek words that are in the text. Thank you very much. I, I know them really well. It's, it's right here on my paper if you'd like to, to look at them. But, but what I feel, what I'm completely convicted of, is that it's my job to find out what this passage is saying, what God is attempting to communicate to his people through his divine revelation, and communicate that to you. So sometimes we can, we can fall prey to this majoring in minors as well. So we, we all have to be careful with that. Now, one of the causes 
of weakness in the church today is the virtual disappearance from our pulpits, I'm talking about nationwide, of sound, steady, scriptural, expository teaching. The church as a whole, wonderful exceptions, but the church as a whole appears to be more interested in being entertained than in being challenged. More interested in the production of it all than in real spiritual growth. More interested in the power of positive thinking than in the Word of God. My opinion. But it's based on some pretty careful observations. Now that's what we're not supposed to do. But let's don't spend all our time on that. Let's look at what we are supposed to do. Look at verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I could also emphasize it this way, but the goal of our instruction, as opposed to the outcome of these other teachers that are concentrating on genealogies and endless myths, that are telling people they can't get married or that they've got to abstain from certain foods or that something that would be more, much more serious, that the, re- the resurrection has already occurred. The goal of Paul's instruction, and he, he includes Timothy in this, when he says our, or the apostolic instruction, is love. The word telos, which is the Greek word that's translated goal here, means the purpose of an event or a state. It's, it's, used in, it's viewed in terms of its result. So that's why it's translated sometimes purpose, intent, or goal. I was doing a, a little radio program one time. This was several years ago, actually, before I even went to seminary. And the person that came on before me... Uh, was a lady Bible teacher, and she made, uh, she made a big to-do about how goal-setting in Christianity was an evil. And I know the point she was trying to make, that our will should be submitted to God's will, but the way she made it was inappropriate. Paul says this is at least twice he uses this particular word. He, I, press on, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of Christ. He had a goal to, to achieve spiritual maturity, of course, by means of the Holy Spirit, but he had a direction. He had somewhere he was going. And here he says his teaching has somewhere where it's going as well. The result of everything that Paul taught, the bottom line should have been that people loved God more because of what Paul taught and therefore then loved their fellow believer, their fellow man, the, their, the, the, the one whom, for whom Christ also died, more as well. That should be the outcome of it. And what he's saying is, if we're going to argue all the time about endless myths and genealogies, that's not going to result in loving God more, or loving my fellow believer more either. The outcome, the, the, not only the purpose, but the result that Paul had in mind here, the ultimate aim, or the telos of a Bible teacher, should not be to, to generate debate and controversy. That should not be the goal. It should be to cultivate lives, the lives of those that he leads, so that they manifest love in their daily living. I'm glad that someone once quipped, well, you you must go to the love church. Well, that's cool. I'm I'm good with that. Uh, Were you trying to insult me by saying that? I I would hope, I hope not, because it, it it would reflect poorly on you. 
Yeah, that, that's great. That's good by me. Because that means we're getting it. That means when we open the Word, we're understanding it. You see, we don't worship the God of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson worshipped a deistic God. A deistic God was transcendent, but he's not imminent. He's outside of his creation, but he's, he doesn't interact with it. A transcendent God did not reveal himself to his creation. Well, we worship a theistic God, the theistic God, that did reveal himself to his creation. And the more we learn about him, and this is where we do, the more we learn about him, the lovelier he becomes, the more beautiful he becomes to us. Now, it's not to say he's not already beautiful to you. But the more you, and I don't care if you've been in the Word 50, 60 years. You open it up tonight and read it some more, and read it with eyes that see and ears that hear, and he'll become even more beautiful to you, and you'll love him more. If you learn more about me, you may, you may like me more, you may like me less. It's the same way with, with you, because we all have flaws. It depends on how our flaws match up, I think, sometimes, as to whether we're compatible with, when it comes to our, our flaws that we have in life. But not God. He has no flaws. So his divine self-revelation, if properly exposited, is going to lead to love. And that's what Paul says here. This love should spring, Paul says, from a pure heart, a conscious void of shame, and a genuine trust in God. Now, now the term pure heart I mean, literally is a clean heart. It's a heart that's cleansed from all unrighteousness. In 1 John 1, 9, the apostle says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's the kind of heart that we need to have here. We can't love unless we're walking in fellowship with God, unless we have a cleansed heart. Heart And here the heart is not just the physical organ. It's not just the seat of the emotions. It's, it is more reflective of the, of the entire person, I believe. A good conscience. This is, a, this is the kind of conscience that doesn't keep you awake at night. You know what? If, if you're so totally focused on God that your love for him is growing exponentially day by day, you tend to have a clear conscience because you're going to be walking in fellowship with him. A clean heart leads to a clear conscience. And a clear conscience is one that allows you to get some sleep from time to time. Now, there are other reasons for staying awake, so if you're having insomnia problems, don't, um, don't think I'm picking on you. The final thing is, is from a, a genuine or a sincere, actually the Greek term means unhypocritical faith. Yeah, there are people that, that are hypocritical in their worship. But Paul says that, that when their instruction, when the apostolic instruction was followed accurately then one would love, and they would love from a pure heart or a cleansed heart, from a good conscience, and from a non-hypocritical faith. Now look at verses 6 and 7 with the time that we have left. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Now what you see what he did, he first gives you the negative, and then he comes back and tells us what we should be doing, and now he's returned again to what we ought not to be doing. For some men, now these some men are the same men that, that Timothy has been instructed by Paul, that he's been ordered or commanded by Paul, to tell them, no, teach strange doctrine. Same group. For some men, straying from these things. Now, what are, the three, what are the, these things? Sound doctrine that leads to love from a cleansed heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion is exactly that. Discussion that goes nowhere, that bears no fruit. But the fruit, the ultimate fruit that this kind of discussion does not bear is 
the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. You see, if, if in our theological discussions the outcome is not love, then something's wrong with our theological discussion. Just like in our instruction, if, if we sit down at a coffee shop and we talk theology and we walk away just angry as we can be with each other, something went wrong at the table. Don't, don't you think? Something's not right. Love wasn't expressed. And I'm not talking about some maudlin, sentimentality, pansy, wimpy kind of thing. I'm talking about the love of God that's expressed through Jesus Christ. That kind of love. That's not wimpy at all. These men, they, they stray from sound doctrine, and they've turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be something that they're not. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. People can preach with vigor, and they can be really wrong, even though they're really enthusiastic. It's possible. Now, in my, in my view, what, what Paul is doing here is he's going back to that word sincere faith the unhypocritical faith, well, they had, it, it looks very much like, the, the person being discussed in verses 6 and 7, had a hypocritical faith rather than a non-hypocritical faith. And if you've got, if you own a non-hypocritical, or a, a, I'm sorry, if you own a hypocritical faith, then that's all you're going to be able to preach is a hypocritical faith. If, if you don't own it, you can't preach it. At least not for very long. People can see through hypocrisy in a heartbeat. Believe me. And, and you're not going to get anywhere in ministry unless you really believe that which you preach. People will maybe stick around at a church for some wrong reason. You know, maybe they're looking for a girlfriend or you're looking for a husband or, or because they like the fact that church has a bowling alley. I don't know what it might be. But people can see through hypocrisy. And Paul's saying, now wait a minute. That kind of Thinking leads to fruitless discussion. And that's not what we're to do. The law is referred to here, wanting to be teachers of the law, is the Mosaic Code, but also the law was the scriptures of Paul's day. Remember that. When Paul says all scriptures God breathed, he's talking about Hebrew Bible at this point. The Greek New Testament hadn't been compiled yet. Individual letters, to be sure. It was beginning to be compiled, to be sure. But it hadn't been completely compiled so he's, he's speaking about Old Testament, particularly the legal parts of it. Paul probably did not mean that these erring teachers failed to understand the letter of their content, although that may have been true of some of them. He, he probably meant that they didn't understand what they were really saying or not saying by their emphasis. You, know, you can have improper emphasis, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? You see? You can, you can preach the right thing, but with, uh, with an improper emphasis, and, and people go away having fruitless discussion. There's a pretty high standard that you'll see that will be set of the one that communicates here in First Timothy, not only of what is taught, but the character of the one that's communicating. Very high standard. Paul's description of their confidence implies in this context more of a stubbornness, a refusal to be denied. We might say that they're dogmatic, which, along with the claim to authority, Paul regards with irony, since they have no real understanding of the matters that they teach. I, I see that from time to time in other contexts, not in this context here, but in other contexts I'll see people be extremely assertive and dogmatic, 
and be just as as far off the track as you can possibly be. And um, I had professors that had patience with me when I did that, and so we have to have patience with others when they do that as well. Well, what does this mean in terms of application? And I, I think this, all of us need to periodically ask ourselves the important question, what am I doing here? And I'm talking about at any particular local church. Why, why am I at that particular local church? I'm convinced that there are some that attend church here for the wrong reasons. That's not my intention to go into that or expand upon it tonight. That would only distract. It wouldn't help the, the issue. But this is for you. Why do you attend any one particular local church? Are you here to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and as a result of that knowledge to come to love God and those for whom Christ died more intensely every day? Or are you here to get in fruitless discussion, to argue about genealogies and myths, numerology and typology? I hope that you're here to grow in grace. And I hope that's the knowledge that is gained is not an end unto itself. I hope it doesn't stop there. I hope that you, you make the reasonable, logical, rational connection between knowing God and loving God. You, you almost have to force it not to have that happen. Because a real understanding of God, almost, if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, will almost, will almost lead to that inevitably. Are you developing a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. Well, if you are, then you're on the right track. If not, then I'll let your own conscience be your guide.